it's great to be here. Tonight, we're going to be dealing with a very important piece of text. When we started the Isaiah 53 lecture, I told you that Isaiah 53 is considered by the church, without question, to be the text the most important text that proves that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. But you know, a sophisticated missionary might say to you, not really. I've heard Christians say to me, Isaiah 53 really doesn't prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe he isn't the Messiah, and another Messiah would come and suffer. doesn't mean it has to be Jesus. He's not the only Jew that suffered. But Daniel 9 is different. You see, Daniel 9, chapter 9 of Daniel prophesizes specifically that the Messiah would come and he would die, cut down, before the destruction of the second temple. Who else could that have been but Jesus of Nazareth? No one else. That's why it's a very important text. I just, I think it needs a little bit of introduction. Daniel 9 is going to deal with language that some of you may not be familiar with. And therefore, even before we sort of get started, I want to be a glossary for you. Daniel uses the language Shvuim and Shvuah. Weak and weeks. Now, to most people, when we say a week, we think of seven 24-hour periods. Am I right? Weeks, many of them. However, Daniel is going to be using the language of Shavuah week, Shavuim weeks, not as weeks of days, but weeks of years, which means a week is seven years. Seven weeks is... Hey, you guys are okay. Let's make it a little harder. How about 62 weeks? How many years is 62 weeks? No. Oh, she knows. 434 years. If I say 69 weeks, how many years is that? 483 years. Very good. Where did you go to school? Very good over here. There you go. That's the answer. Why would Daniel use such an unusual, bizarre language like week and weeks to describe seven years, 462 years, 483 years, and 70 weeks, 490 years? Why does he simply say seven years, 49 years? Why is he using this language of weeks of years? Ladies and gentlemen, can any of you tell me where else the Bible uses the language of week and weeks to indicate years and not days? Does anyone know? Yes? Right. The Bible tells us that there's a special commandment called keeping and observing the Shemitah. During temple times when the Jews were about to go into the land, the Bible tells us, Scripture indicates that the Almighty wants us to let the land lie fallow on the seventh year, not to touch it, molest it, seed it, plant it, harvest it, nothing. It's just got to lay there. You can't do anything to it. By the way, Bible critics will tell you that, well, the Bible was written about 2,500 years ago, maybe 2,800 years ago. 
Scripture indicates that the Bible is about, well, Sinai took place about 3,450 years ago. But you know, back then there were just certain things they knew, and there were just other things they didn't know. And what's fascinating is by this law of Shemitah, the Bible tells us that whoever wrote it, is it God? Was it four committees and a fifth that came in at the end? Which is it? To whoever wrote this Bible, it was very important that people not touch their land on the seventh year and they let it lie there. Can anyone think of a logical reason why that would be important? Why would it be important to an agricultural society that every once in a while you let the land lay there and you don't harvest it, you don't seed it? Yes. So that after seven years it will run out of things like nutrients. Ah, and where are you from? the writer that you let the land lie fallow once every seven years. Dallas education would tell you that, hey, if you just keep seeding the land and harvesting, you're going to just you know, plow it to death. It's simply you will usurp all the nutrients. So we can think of, we here can think of a very logical reason why we would not want to keep just planting the land year after year but let it rest. That makes sense. We can understand that. But yet this creates another problem. What problem does this create if on the seventh year, every year we don't plant, we don't seed, we don't harvest? What problem does it create? People are going to starve to death. If what you did was suddenly on the seventh year, you stopped planting, you stopped harvesting, you're going to go hungry, not only on the seventh year, but on the eighth year as well. Remember, you can't plant in the seventh for the eighth. So for two years, you're going to starve to death. Can anyone here think of a way we can get out of that problem? That seems to be a very serious problem. Can anyone here think of a way we can get out from under that problem so that we can let the land lie fallow, yet still have food on the seventh and eighth year? Yes? Okay, that's called rotation, land rotation. Farmers do that in this country. And that is you simply divide your land into seven sections that can look like a pizza pie any way you want. And you simply just keep rotating. So every year there's one piece of land that you're not using. You just divide it up by the... Okay, that's good. Land rotation. Can anyone think of something else you can do to deal with this, to ameliorate this very serious problem? Import? Americans are the imports. That wasn't... Remember we said 2,500 or 3,500 years ago. No, we didn't have... Who said, who said it? There we go. It's going to be a long night, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. The other option is, very simply, that you can store your grain. That means for the first six years, you take one-sixth of your grain, right? And you simply store it away. You can keep rotating that, what you're storing away, so you're not eating at the six-year, you know, five-year-old food, but... You keep rotating that, but you keep taking off a little bit. And this way, on the seventh year, you've got the food and you're able to eat. It probably didn't take you guys more than about, what, about two minutes to come up with two logical alternatives how to deal with this very serious problem. Now, I know that all of us sometimes ask ourselves, 
Who did write the Bible? Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it dependable? Did God really write that? You know, I'm kind of worried about my eternity. I want to do the right thing. The Bible, whoever wrote this, says, no. Don't bother putting away your grain every year. You don't have to do that. You can't rotate because it's only going to be on the seventh year. Whoever wrote this, committees, God says, look, you just keep planting and seeding, planting and seeding, and don't worry about the seventh and eighth year because on the sixth year, I'm going to bless the land and you'll get three times your harvest. Who wrote that? Who has that kind of control? Remember, we can think of a logical reason why we would want to have this very logical mitzvah of, Sh- of Shemitah. You and I, all of us here, we were able, two minutes, we were able to come with two simple ways to get out of the problem. And if you ask someone who didn't believe in the authority of the Bible, they wouldn't say to you that the Bible was written by fools, by... No, not at all. They were brilliant people, committees. How is it that the Bible is the greatest work of Western civilization? You know... Oh, it's, the, you, know, it's the, you know, the greatest piece of literature ever written, you know? You ever hear of a great piece of literature written by a committee? Those people who deny the authority of the Bible would say to you, these were very wise people. How wise really were they? If they weren't God, why would they say on the sixth year you'll get three times your surplus? How could they say that? The one thing they can control is the land. It doesn't say plant three times as much on the sixth year. Oh no, on the sixth year, you're going to get three times your harvest. That's a religion that will only last six years. Because on the sixth year, when that doesn't happen, you know, Hare Krishna kind of looks kind of good, you know? It's like... <laughs> so again, what we want to think about when we're examining the Bible carefully is not just the prophecy that is fulfilled. This is something much more important than that. Because here, who would have said on the sixth year you would get three times your harvest? Who can control that? And there were two logical alternatives. I want you to look in the study guide, and we very briefly can see the laws of Shemit. If you ask, what will we eat in the seventh year? We have not planted, nor have we harvested crops. I will direct my blessing to you in the sixth year, and the land will produce enough crops for three years. You will therefore be eating your old crops when you plant on the eighth year. You will still be eating your old crops until the crops of the ninth year are ripe. Who could have written this? Who could have had that kind of control? Scripture also tells us that, as you know, there were a 70-year period where the Jewish people, after the destruction of the first temple, the Jewish people go into exile for 70 years. When the last verses in the Bible tell us that the reason why the Jewish people went into their Babylonian exile is because they had abandoned the laws of Shemitah. They had violated this crucial law that Leviticus 25 tells us. And therefore, because they violated the law of seven of Shemitah, therefore they went into Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel, who was writing in the Babylonian exile, is describing a very important prophecy using the language of Leviticus 25, the language of Shemitah. Now this is where the Christians come in. Daniel seems to be saying that there's a special 70 week period of time 490 years that has been decreed. And indeed it says here that at the end of that period of time, at the end of 69 of those weeks, 483 years, the Messiah himself will be cut off. But not for himself. It will be a vicarious atonement. He will be dying for others. 
Who else could that have been but Jesus? Now, I will tell you that when I sit down with Christians, I often ask them, how does it work out? Where do we start counting? How do, where do you start for 409 years? I don't know, but my pastor knows. There's a fellow who used to live in San Antonio. He moved to California. He knows. What I'd like to do with you is I'd like to take a look at the text inside. You see how I'm wired up over here? I picked up the BBC twice just walking through the hall. I'm not kidding. Take a look at verse 24, which means it's right above the gray box that has the Hebrew in it. Seventy weeks have been decreed upon your people and your holy city to terminate transgression, to end sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and prophet, which means to consummate and to bring the final prophecies of the Bible to fruition. As we know, we're standing here today and we look at scripture, we know that there are two types of prophecies. There are those that have already been fulfilled and those that have not yet been fulfilled. But here it's telling us that the prophecies will all be sealed at this point and to anoint the Holy of Holies. Now what we're going to do is let's take a look as it appears in the 20th century version of the King James and you'll understand a little later on this evening why I say 20th century King James. Take a look at the lower left hand side because that's where we're going to move now. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, how much is seven weeks and threescore and two weeks? How many weeks is that? Let's start that way. That's 69 weeks, and 69 weeks is how many years? 69 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. Verse 26. And after the threescore and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and to the end of war desolations are determined. Aha, uh -huh. so we see here that after a 69-week period, 483 years after a command to build Jerusalem, to build the temple, the Messiah himself gets cut off. Now, I want you to know that this is one of the most exotic reconstructions of the Jewish scriptures. Whenever anyone presents Daniel 9 to you, you always want to ask a few questions. And I'll ask them to you. If I opened up an English translation of the Bible done by Jewish people, not by Christians, how many times would the word Messiah appear? If I opened up an English translation of the Bible done by Jewish translators, how many times would the word Messiah appear? Does anyone know? Zero. That's very good. If I opened up a King James Version, or NIV, a New International Version, or New, New American Standard, any of the fundamentalist Christian Bibles, and I looked at the concordance, so I looked it up on my computer software that has Bible works or whatever, 
How many times would the word Messiah appear? Twice. Right here. Now the word Messiah is really a Latin word. The word Christos, well, there's a Greek word, Christ. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't say Jesus Christ. Because what you are saying is Jesus the Messiah. So if that's not something that you believe, don't say Jesus Christ. Say Jesus of Nazareth. Christos is the Greek word. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. Ladies and gentlemen, how many times does the word Mashiach appear in the Jewish scriptures in the Hebrew? Zero. How many times does the word, the Hebrew word Mashiach, actually appear in the original Mesoretic text? Does anyone know? 39 times. 39 times in the Jewish scriptures does the word Mashiach appear. Hold on, Rabbi Singer, what's going on over here? The word Mashiach actually means and is correctly translated as anointed. And in all of the 37 times, the King James translates that word correctly in its English as anointed. But only two times they decide, here we're going to translate it as Messiah. I wonder why. Now I'm going to repeat something I've said a number of times in past lectures to those of you who have not been here before. And that is that if we went back in a time machine to temple times and we walked back on the streets of Jerusalem where prophets walked and where the Bible was being written and we asked someone, tell me something, where is the Mashiach? What would they ask us? Which Mashiach are you talking about? Because in the biblical lexicon, the word Mashiach simply means anointed one. And anointed ones were priests, Leviticus, numerous times of the priests in Aaron referring to as a Mashiach. The kings, too, were called the Mashiach. Leaders, even Gentiles. And yes, in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 13, the nation of Israel is called God's Mashiach. You must understand that as an American living in 1995, as you are so distant in time and place to the language of Scripture, you must understand that you speak another language, and I'm talking about English here. You must understand that the word Messiah, Mashiach, is never used in the Bible about who you and me now refer to as the Mashiach the very first time in Jewish literature that we ever the term Mashiach used about the one who we are all waiting for to come at the end of days is about the first century BCE, never before. You see, the lexicon of America in 1995 is very different than the Bible. And the writers, the 54 translators of the King James Version knew it. And therefore, only here did they translate the word Mashiach as Messiah, because they knew that the word Messiah means a whole lot more to us than simply a priest, a king, a prophet, a leader of the Jewish people. It means that person from the house of David who will usher in a utopian society of love, peace, and the universal knowledge of God. So the first thing that's been done with your mind is a switch. 
37, well, they have no Christological import. We'll leave them and translate them correctly as anointed. But only here do they translate as Messiah. Some reason, oh my gosh, we're talking about the Messiah here. Number one. Reconstruction number two. Are there capital letters in the Hebrew language? They don't exist. How does the word Messiah in Daniel 9 get a capital letter? We know in our lexicon, am I right? We could say, oh, you're my Messiah, small m. When we talk about the Messiah at the end of days, it's capital M. The next thing the King James did for you is they took the word Mashiach, they made it into Messiah instead of anointed as they do it in all 37 other places, and then they took the M and made it capitalized. Who's doing this with our Bible? We're not finished yet. Mashiach, does it mean the Messiah? No. The word Ha-Mashiach means the Anointed One, or if you must, the Messiah. You see, there is no hey ha Take a look at the King James. There is no definite article yet. If you see the third line down in verse 25, we see the Messiah, capital M. How are you doing this to our Bible? Do you understand what's being done with the minds and eyes and souls of the readers of the King James and the NIV when they see this and they have no idea? Do you understand why sometimes I might be perplexed when you ask me, Rabbi Singer, I really do want to buy a good Bible. What translation do you recommend? God bless that question. But for the Jewish people... We don't really know. We're not sure because translations are not terribly important to us. They shouldn't be. But the reality is virtually all of the Christian world is entirely dependent on a translation. Virtually no Christian can read his Old and New Testament in its original language. Translations are everything. We were watching on John Ankleberg and had a big argument last night. I don't know if you watch channel, what is it, channel 30 over there? The King James only and not the King James only. It was a guy that he had the King James, that's the word of God, that's it, nothing else, da da da. What's going on over here? But there's a total dependency on the translator. And here is number four, and this is the kicker. The final thing that's done here is compression of time. Didn't you think it was a little odd when I said to you when we read it in the King James, take a look with me again if you would, the third, we'll stop from the third line down in verse 25, to build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. And I said, how many weeks is that? And you said 69 weeks, 483 years. Isn't that an odd way to say the number 69? Seven, 60, and two? No language do you do that in. We say soixante-neuf in French. We say neunundsechzig in German or in Yiddish. We say sixty-nine in, in English. We say shishim v'tesha in Hebrew. No one says sixty-two and seven. That's not how we speak. We're not supposed to speak that way because in reality what the King James did was it compressed two periods of time together. Ladies and gentlemen, as you'll see in a moment, there's a good reason why the word Messiah appears twice, Mashiach appears twice here. Do you know why? There are two different anointed ones here, two different people entirely. As a matter of fact, as we'll see in a minute, the first person is called also a nugid, special leader, someone of royalty, and the second one is not. But there's a problem. 
If you subscribe to two anointed ones here, as you'll soon there are, you'll realize that this couldn't possibly be speaking about Jesus. You see, if this is talking about Jesus, then there's one anointed one, that's it. There's one Messiah, there's one Mashiach, that's Jesus. But there's a problem. Daniel isn't speaking about, two, about one Messiah at all. He's speaking about two different people. So what's done is the 762 are compressed together so that the Messiah then comes after 69 weeks rather than after 7 weeks, and then another one after 62 weeks, which means one anointed one comes after 49 years from the time the commandment is given forth, and another one comes after another 434 years. Two different ones, two different callings. One of them is royalty, one of them is not. Now, some of you are saying, wait, Rabbi Singer, the Christians compress and the Jews don't. If you take a look, by the way, at the right side of the page, take a look, if you will, where you see classical Jewish translation. This is how it should read. And you should, you should know and comprehend from the emergence of the word to return and build Jerusalem until an anointed prince will be seven weeks. Stop. In the... In the in the trup, in the musical sounds, you'll see that there's actually something called an esnachta there, which is a semicolon. There's a stop right there. And for 62 weeks, it should be rebuilt. Street and moat, but in troubled times. Now, the proof, of course, is take a look at the next verse. What does the next verse say? Does it say after the 69 weeks? Oh, no. It's after 62 weeks. 62 and 7 is not to be compressed together. And you might be saying to yourself, well, maybe it's just an argument between Jews and Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, the vast majority of Christian translators agree with the Jewish people. Please turn your page twice. Now, what I've done for you is I actually went and put together for you a montage. A poopoo platter, if you will. You have what are a poopoo platter? It's good. And there's an altar in the middle with a fire. You can bring sacrifices there in the middle, right? Things on the egg rolls are burning in the middle. Anyway. You'll take a look here. You will see these are all Christian translators of Daniel 9, verse 25. And you'll see all of them, even though these are all Christians, many of them very conservative will say, well, you can't say that about Daniel 9. It should be separated. I'd like you just, let's take a look at the Revised Standard Version. We'll go three lines down, the one all the way to the left. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay, that means after 49 years, an anointed one comes. 49 years. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built. Again, with squares and moat, but in troubled times. Ladies and gentlemen, you should be finding something on here that should blow you out the window. You should find a translator here that bothers you and will cause enormous questions in your mind. Which translator makes no sense to you? Didn't any of you notice that one of the people here that agree with the Jewish people, that the 7 and 62 are to be separated, and there's a Messiah that comes after each of those periods, is the King James Version? What? You just told me that the King James Version compresses it together, as does the NIV and the New American Standard. Hold on to your seats. When you go into a store today, when you pull out the night table at the Sheridan, take out a King James Version, that is not the King James Version that was done in 1611. They didn't spell the way we spell today. U's were V's, V's were U's. It's all over the place. They spell like I spell. As a matter of fact, they... Well, it's true. When I use word perfect, right? I mean, it's always not found. You know, we can't, you know, not found. They have no idea what it is. So when I saw the... Well, you know, in, in 1911, Oxford actually took out the original plates 
that they used to make the 1611 Bible, 54 scholars that put it together, and they actually made it in commemoration of the third of the third century after the original 1611, they made, they printed another 1611 King James. And you can buy it in, in a Christian bookstore. And what I did was, and this was one of the most astonishing things that have happened to me this year, in terms of the work that I'm doing, in terms of research, I don't know what went through my mind. I don't know what moved my hand, but it moved, and it went up to the shelf, and I pulled it down, and I opened up Daniel 9, verse 25, and I realized that the original 1611 actually translated it correctly. Not in terms of Messiah, but in terms of the semicolon. Turn the page one more time, please. Because I actually took out a King James version for you. This is the original one from 1611. This is the original 1611 King James Version. You could see the black arrow on the left side pointing to a verse. And look at it. It's right there. Until the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. Semicolon. Stop. <laughs> Three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again. Wool and moat. Someone change it. Who tampered with the King James Version? Someone between 1995 and 1611 altered the 16. They altered the King James Version to compress the two together. They didn't want it that way. What's very interesting is that I, of course, my first question is, who did it? Right? Who done it? I want to know who changed it. So I immediately went into the library at Cornell University, and I started taking out King James, some that were done in the 19th century. And I was able to find that up until 1885, it was, done, it was done properly with the separation. As a matter of fact, if you'll notice very carefully that in 1611, they were playing both sides of the field. They were doing the capital M Messiah. They weren't translating correctly anointed. They were putting the definite article there, but they put the semicolon there. What happened was, if you look at, if you turn back now one page, you'll see that the second box, the middle box there on 1885, revision of the King James Version, you'll see there that they changed the King James. So if you picked up a King James Version in 1885, it would read an anointed one. And of course, the period would be right there. It would be perfectly. Someone between 1885 and our King James said, forget all that stuff, we're going. And they did it all the way. They compressed it together, put in capital M, Messiah, definite article all there. Who played with our Bible? Who is playing with our scripture? How important it is to understand it in its original language. Obviously, the real question is, what's going on over here? What's happening in Daniel 9? I mean, I often ask Christians, you know, you knew Daniel 9, verse 24, 25, 26, perfectly. You knew it by heart. You didn't have to look in once. What does it say in verse 23, 22, 21? Oh, now I have to look in. Why is it? Why is some verses seem to be more important than others? What's going on here? What is happening? Who's speaking here? What's going on in Daniel 9? Let me share with you. It's one of the most magnificent chapters in the Bible. Daniel was in deep pain. And he was deeply confused over the books of Jeremiah. Over the prophecies of Jeremiah. Daniel had a very serious problem. Let me explain. Daniel lived between the destruction of the first temple and the rebuilding of the second temple. That's when he lived, that's when he prophesied. Unlike today, where we don't know when the Messiah will come, Hosea 3 verse 4 simply indicates it's going to be a long time. He says, it will be many days. It doesn't say how many. So today, we don't really know. We hope. We hope that it's soon. We don't know. 
But during the Babylonian exile, things were a little different. They knew it would be 70 years. They knew because the prophet Jeremiah, that man of God, had spoken it through his mouth. Had spoken a prophecy, the word of Jeremiah, the word of God that came out of his mouth, that said that indeed Babylon would be terminated after 70 years. Now, it's important to remember that when Jews endure persecution, when things become difficult for us, they usually don't happen suddenly, but it sort of creeps up. It doesn't happen overnight. I I know I shared this with you, that when the second temple was destroyed in the year 70, it didn't just suddenly happen, that just the lights went out. Oh, no. Oh, there was constant decline, decline, decline. 4 BCE, Herod the Great is killed. It dies. All, All autonomy terms of the Jewish people had been completely lost. And then we're seeing Caligula from 37 to 41 destroying the temple and bringing all kinds of abominations there and terrible things occurred under Nero and finally, finally, finally in the year 70 it was over. We know about the revolt. We know about all these things that took place up until finally when the second temple was destroyed on the very same day the first temple was Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av. We know that indeed the pain that we've endured in the last two centuries didn't happen suddenly. We know that in Kishnev, the pogroms were taking place at the end of the 19th century. World War I, half a million Jews died. We don't remember that because of the pain of what's greater and more recent. Hard to remember then. You need to know that when the first temple was destroyed, it wasn't sudden. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in his day, he was the king of the whole world. There, wasn't, there was no other power besides him. He controlled the whole world. A year after he became king, scripture tells us that he came into Jerusalem and subjugated it, controlled it entirely. The Jewish people had lost all their autonomy. It was a very difficult time. It would only be a few years later than the prophets would be carried out. 11 years before the final destruction of the first temple and finally the first temple would be destroyed when Babylon comes into Jerusalem it's 18 years before the actual destruction of the first temple Daniel knows of two very important prophecies and I'd like you to turn a page you may, I'm not, if you're on the page where you have all those translations you just have to turn back one page Daniel is examining two very seemingly very simple verses. Each of the verses talk about a 70 year period. Each of the verses talk about a termination of Babylon. But only one of them, the second one, speaks about the restoration of the Jewish people back into the land. But they're almost identical. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 25.12 and Jeremiah 29.10. And it shall be at the completion of 70 years I will visit upon the king of Babylon and upon their nation, says the Lord, their iniquity, and upon the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it for an everlasting desolation. And it doesn't, doesn't require a lot of faith to believe that, right? If you want to find the hanging guards of Nebuchadnezzar, right, one of the eight wonders of the world, you would have to go to the hardware store to get a shovel, get on Iraqi airways and start to dig, and maybe you'd find a little crumb. These prophecies, ladies and gentlemen, have been fulfilled. Babylon is through. We go to the next verse. Jeremiah 29.10 For so said the Lord, For at the completion of 70 years of Babylon, I will remember you. 
and I will fulfill my good word toward you to restore you to this place. Okay, we have Jeremiah appears to be saying twice that Babylon's got 70 years. When they're 70 years up, Jews, you're going back to the land of Israel. You know that for, for quite a period, there were just no Jews in the land of Israel for that very short period of time. That was the only point in our history since we entered the land that Jews were simply not in the land of Israel. There was not a Jew during that period of time. Daniel has a very serious problem. You see, when Daniel was contemplating these two crucial prophecies of Jeremiah 25 verse 12 and 29 verse 10, he was standing in the first year of Darius the Mede. Might not mean a whole lot to you, but this will. It was about a half a century, 50 years after the destruction of the first temple, which meant it was 68, 69 years after the subjugation of Jerusalem. He's standing in Babylon, and it, it happened. Indeed, Babylon was destroyed. Historians today cannot explain how it is. Overnight, Babylon was destroyed, just as the Bible had said. But the other part of the prophecy didn't happen. Nothing was happening. Jews weren't going back to the land. The Jews weren't returning to the land. Oh my gosh, Daniel says, what has happened? And he's terrified that, God forbid, the return had been delayed. God forbid the evil that was spoken about in the law of Moses became fulfilled. I need to explain this to you. Scripture tells us there are two very difficult parts of the five books of Moses to read. There are two very difficult parts of the law of Moses to read. It is difficult. And that is Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Two very difficult chapters in the Bible. It's called the Tochacha. It's a point in Scripture where God speaks about very horrible things that can happen to the Jewish people if they turn away from God. Daniel was concerned about one of those verses. You see, in Leviticus 26, verse 18, Scripture says that if indeed the Jews do not turn back to God, then God will multiply their punishment by seven times. Take a look at the lower right-hand side, Leviticus 26, verse 18. If despite this you do not heed me, then I shall punish you seven times for your sins. How much is seven times 70? And that's what Daniel was afraid of. Oh my God, we continue to sin in Babylon. Now it's not going to be 70. I'm standing here. Darius the Mede is here. Babylon is over. But the other part hasn't happened. The Jewish people haven't returned to the land of Israel. Oh my God, our iniquities and our sins. What have we done? Woe unto us. Ladies and gentlemen, if you ever want a good cry, ever want a good cry, read this chapter. Not from verse 24. Read it from verse 1. Daniel begins to entreat the Almighty. He begins by, and we'll see it inside in a moment, he begins by saying, look, I'm standing here in the first year of Darius the Mede. He didn't realize that it was going to only be one year. Cyrus was coming right away. He was right around the corner. And he says, I'm sitting here. I'm trying to understand with the calculations of the prophecies of Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel is speaking about his, his, his mentor, he, well, Jeremiah. He's speaking about the former prophet Jeremiah. And he's saying, I'm sitting here trying to understand the calculations with numbers of Jeremiah. He doesn't understand. And he begins by saying that finally he says that, look, 
we have to understand that it's from the going forth of the word that's when you start counting we'll see that in a moment but he starts crying to God and he says oh God I know it's because of our iniquities it's because of our sins that we committed you see Daniel's not waiting for the Messiah that means our what we're talking about the Messiah. he's not praying about a Messiah here as you will see he's concerned about Jerusalem he's concerned about the temple he's going to be praying for the sanctuary and he begins to weep and he begins to confess tonight I hope tonight you'll come home you'll open up the book of Daniel you'll read it you'll recognize many of the verses they're in our prayers today in our synagogue and he confesses his sins and the sins of the Jewish people you know when Daniel was doing that it was so moving literally the heavenly host the angels stopped moving God had commanded them to give forth the word to Daniel to explain it to him but as Daniel began to speak and entreat the Almighty all the angels stopped they didn't want to give Daniel the word because God wanted to hear his words the prophets loved us so deeply they prayed and cried for us constantly they wanted us to be better they wanted us to be close to God literally the angels had the answer at the beginning of his prayer but the angels waited until finally the prayer was over and the Almighty wanted to hear every word and finally when the prayer was through the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says Daniel I'm going to make you wise to understand let's take a look inside would you let's take a look now at the top of the very first page okay where you see Daniel 9 in the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus now that's not the Ahasuerus most of you know from Purim because he was a Persian this is the Ahasuerus who was a Mede here we go of the seed of media now that's important information you know how when you walk into a mall you know it says you're standing here I never could figure which way does it mean I'm on my head I'm trying to turn to figure out what that means He's saying, you're standing here. If you want to understand this, you can't even begin to understand unless you know that you are standing here basically 50 years after the destruction of the first temple, which means 68, 69 years since the subjugation of Jerusalem, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. That's right, because Darius replaced Nebuchadnezzar. In the first year of his reign verse 2 I Daniel contemplated with books the calculations the number of years about which the word of Hashem had come to the prophet Jeremiah to complete the 70 years and of course now he understands from the ruins from the destruction of Jerusalem and I set my face toward my Lord God to request prayer and supplication with fasting sackcloth and ashes now we're skipping a whole lot here verse 13 as is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. And we did not entreat the continence of the Lord our God to repent of our iniquities and to contemplate your truth. And the Lord hastened with the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous with all his deeds which he performs. And we did not hearken to his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who took your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and you have made your, for yourself a name as of this day we, we have sinned we have dealt wickedly my Lord in keeping with your righteousness please let your anger and your fury turn away from your city Jerusalem your holy mountain for because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors Jerusalem and your people have become the scorn of all those around us and now pay heed our God to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications 
and let your countenance shine upon your desolate sanctuary. For my Lord's sake, incline, my God, your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see the desolation of ourselves in the city upon which your name is proclaimed. For not because of our righteousness do we cast down our supplications before you, rather because of your great compassion. Oh, my Lord, heed. Oh, my Lord, forgive. Oh, my Lord, be attentive and act. Do not delay for your sake, my God, for your name is proclaimed upon your city and your people. And now he starts to describe what started to happen. And more I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and casting my supplication before Hashem, my God, for the mountain of the sanctuary of my God, still I was speaking in prayer. And the man Gabriel, whom I saw in the beginning, vision was lifted in flight and approached me about the time of the afternoon offering about Mincha time. He made me understand. He spoke to me and he said, Daniel, I have just gone to make you skillful in understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went forth and I have come to relate it for beloved are you. Contemplate the matter and gain understanding in vision. And now we're going to find out what happened. How long did the first temple stand? Does anyone know? Okay. 410 years, thank you. And the second temple stood? 420. The second temple stands 420 years. How long was the Babylonian exile? 70 years. There's your 490 years. Daniel is about to find out about the whole time up to the destruction of the second temple, the whole 490 year period from the destruction of the first to the destruction of the second. That time must be fulfilled. God indeed had brought difficult things for the Jews during the second temple. As we'll see, although the Jewish people deserved to be punished and to perhaps remain in Babylon for the full 490 years, God does a special thing. And that is he allows the second temple to be built but in troubled times. It's going to be difficult, which means the actual second temple period in and of itself is part of the punishment. Take a look now at the prophecy. Seventy weeks have been decreed upon your people and your holy city to terminate transgression, to end sin, to wipe away iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and prophet, to anoint the Holy of Holies. The messianic age cannot begin until these 490 years have been completed. Now let's go to the lower right hand side. And you should know and comprehend from the emergence of the word. Now, when we see the word, word in the Bible, it doesn't just mean word, it means word. It means the word of prophecy, the word of Jeremiah. It's the word devar. If you look up, you'll see the words devar in Hebrew in Daniel 9, verse 2, where he speaks about the word of Hashem. From the going forth of the word, that starts at the destruction, the year of the ruins of Jerusalem. From the going forth of the word, which means from the destruction of the first temple, to return and build Jerusalem until an anointed prince will be seven weeks. 449 years, excuse me, have to pass until from the destruction of the first temple, 49 full years have to pass until an anointed ruler can come. Who is the anointed ruler that gives the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem? Cyrus. Cyrus wasn't even Jewish, but he was a king. 
and he came immediately after the seven weeks were completed. Cyrus is called the Messiah, you bet. In Isaiah 45, in Isaiah 45, God says, Cyrus, you are my Mashiach. You are my anointed. Why? Because you're going to give the command to rebuild Jerusalem, the city and the temple. And it was Cyrus. You are my Mashiach. Now Isaiah wrote this with prophetic vision, seeing in the future more than two centuries ahead. Take a look, just turn the page briefly for a moment so we could see this verse. We're starting Isaiah 44, verse 28 through 45, 1 and then 13, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and all my desire he shall fulfill. And to say to Jerusalem, say of Jerusalem, it shall be built and the temple shall be founded. So said the Lord to his anointed one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I held to flatten nations before him and the loins of of kings I I will loosen to open portals before him and gates shall not be closed. Verse 13, I aroused him with righteousness and all his ways I will straighten out. He shall build my city and free my exiles. Why? Because Cyrus had an invested interest. He wanted prophets? No, not because of prophets. Neither for a price nor for a bribe, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, Cyrus, the Bible tells us, Isaiah prophesizes, that there will be a man named Cyrus, who is God's Mashiach, who will give the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, Cyrus isn't the only one who said that. Um, Excuse me, Isaiah is not the only one who says that. Ezra says that right in the beginning. Did you ever notice why the book of Ezra doesn't come after the book of Daniel in the Christian Bible? Did you ever wonder why is it buried by kings? What is it doing there? Why did the church bury Ezra and Nehemiah? I always look when people are looking things up in the Bible and they can't find it. They finally have to 20 minutes give up and go to the index, right? They're always looking up Ezra, right? Can't find it. It's buried by Psalms, Kings, somewhere. But why are they burying Ezra? For the church, Ezra can't be after Daniel because if someone read through the Bible and read Daniel 9 and then opened up the next book that belongs there, the book of Ezra, you know what they're going to read? Take a look at the upper right-hand side of the same page. And in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, at the completion of the word, there's the word, word, devour of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord aroused the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he issued a proclamation throughout his kingdom. And also writing, saying, So said Cyrus, the king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth to the Lord God of the heavens delivered to me. And he commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And then he goes and commands him to go. That's why the church buries Ezra. You can't have Ezra after Daniel. No way, that's not going to fly. We need Ezra buried. If they could put Ezra with Homer, that would be great. That's why if you just looked at a Jewish Bible once, you can't have it there. Christians want to change it one way. People who are secular Bible critics, they don't like, you know, they, everyone wants to mish with the Bible. No one can deal with the Bible the way it is. Hmm. By the way, that's why the, we're the whole concept of Dutro Isaiah. Did you hear that? Isaiah wasn't written by one authorizer because now this creates a very, very serious problem for people who doubt the authority of Scripture. How is it that Isaiah can look into the future 250 years away and see Cyrus giving the command? No problem. We'll just take Isaiah, chop it in half after chapter 39. We'll make it 40 on. We'll say that's another prophet who lived in the Babylonian exile. Evidence? No, there is none. We just cannot accept the authority of the Bible. I mean, someone else came along. Well, let's make a tree to Isaiah and let's make the end of it also a third guy who did it as well. That's what they're doing with Daniel. 
When you open up encyclopedia, it'll say, well, many critics believe that Daniel lived during about the year 164 BCE. They can't have Daniel standing in Babylonian exile. That's impossible, because that means he knew when the second temple would be destroyed. So saying, you know, when he speaks about the abominations, he's speaking about Hanukkah, when the Greeks came in and abominated the temple. There's a problem. There's not word word about Hanukkah anywhere in Daniel, but they need to get... I said it to you last time. If they can have Daniel killed in Vietnam, that would be great. Great. We can't have him as a Babylon. That's the real reason. But no one mentions verse 26 where it says, and the temple will be destroyed. He's not talking about Hanukkah. He's talking about 70. And everyone agrees the book of Daniel was written long before 70. We've got Daniel and the Dead Sea Scrolls with everything else. Just as part of the Bible. And if anyone wanted to, all you had to do is take another look at Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, where Isaiah, who everyone admits is the old Isaiah, is talking about Babylon. Open your eyes. Woe to those who have eyes, but yet seeth not those who have ears, yet don't hear. Just, it's all there. You can, well, the answer is right there. Someone says to you, the second part of Isaiah is not written by the one of the first. Say, what is verse chapter 13, 14 talking about Babylon, the destruction of Babylon? Who is that? How can he know? And when someone asks you about Daniel and someone says to you that Daniel, the Bible, was really someone who was writing in 165 and that's how he knew about uh, abominations in, in, the, in the temple and he was speaking about the Greeks, how did he know about the destruction of the second temple? Where did he get that information from? Just look, it's there. They won't talk about it. No one likes our Bible but the Jews. Only the nation of Israel says we accept all the Bible the way it is. We don't want to touch it. We don't want to play with it. If you take a look at Second Chronicles, these are the last words of the Bible. We looked at it a moment ago, I think, did we not? We not, we maybe did not. You see Second Chronicles chapter 36. Look at the key word, devar. That's the key word. That word devar means the word of Jeremiah. Remember, Daniel is speaking about when the word goes forth. That's when it starts ticking. That's what Gabriel's telling him. You know when to start counting? It's when the word goes forth. And in Daniel 9 verse 2, it says very clearly that that's at the destruction of Jerusalem. Not Daniel, as you thought, start counting 18 years earlier. See, to fulfill the word of the Lord in the mouth of Jeremiah. There's not an extra word in the Bible. Until the land was appeased for its Sabbath, for all the days of, desol of its desolation, it rested until the completion of 70 years. And the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, at the completion of the word, see now we're at the completion of the word of the Lord in the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah gives the prophecy. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there are two, two, two verses here. Remember the two verses we looked at? There are two different periods of 70 years. There was Daniel's mistake. See, although the first part, Daniel 25 verse 12, indeed is referring to the destruction of Babylon after 70 years, which means if we start counting at the subjugation of Jerusalem, go another 70 years, we'll be at the, at the destruction of Babylon. But notice there's not a word in the first part about returning to the land. That's not also, you notice that the word devar, word, is not in there. But look at the second one, Jeremiah 29.10, the very end, to restore the Jewish people. That's referring to the final, to the completion, when the Jews return to the land. When do you start counting for that? Look at Daniel 9, verse 2. At the destruction, at the ruins of Jerusalem, not at the subjugation of Jerusalem. I'd like you to take a look at a chart that I prepared for you. This chart was designed for you to study so that you can see, so that you can understand. Let's make it very simple. If you look at the chart, you'll see 
On the left side, where you see all the numbers, you see in the center there's a box, a square, that says year from creation. Okay? Year from creation. Okay? And then we have all the years right there. If we go to the right of year from creation, we see the kings of Babylon and Persia. And I give you the actual years that they were in kingship. Nebuchadnezzar was a king for 45 years. Evelmerda followed him and was for 23 years and so on. Now, if you look very carefully, you'll see that in the year 3320, Babylon subjugates Jerusalem. That's the year 3320. So if you take a look at from the year of creation, 3320, move to the right, you'll see Babylon's subjugation of Jerusalem. Now, from the subjugation of Jerusalem until the destruction of Jerusalem was how many years? 18 years. So we just moved down to the year 3338, and then moved to the right, we see that there is the destruction of the first temple. Daniel begins to count in the year 3320 instead of the year 3338. If we keep moving down, we see where Darius is standing. Remember when we say in the mall, you are standing right here? Let's move down the name of king. You see their name of king? You see Evel Murdoch, Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, you see him there right before Cyrus? Okay, so if you go years of kingship and the name of the king, you see Nebuchadnezzar there? And then beneath it, Evel Murdoch, you see that there? Belshazzar, and then there's Darius the Mede. There he is. The year is the year 3390. The year 3390, Daniel is standing. And he's standing and saying, what is going on over here? Babylon is through. It was just destroyed. Darius the Mede is here. Where is the restoration of the Jewish people? Nothing is happening. Things should be occurring if the Jews are going to return. The next person that follows is Cyrus. He's the one that gives the commandment. And then we have the famous Ahasuerosh. Okay? And then Darius the second. And that's where Purim takes place right after that. It's very interesting that every time the Jewish people want to return to the land of Israel, you have to look at the Bible to know when we... Every time when the Bible, every time Scripture shows us when the Jews want to return to the land of Israel, a nation comes up and wants to destroy the Jewish people. When the Jewish people come into the land the first time, Amalek comes and wants to destroy Israel. Doesn't want Israel to literally impregnate the land. Doesn't want Israel to be there. The second time the Jews want to return to the land of Israel after Cyrus, Haman comes up. And he is indeed of Amalek. And he comes up and says, no, 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 we're going to destroy you. And then the Jewish people want to return the third time. Right? And what happens? Suddenly, out of nowhere, right, comes Hitler and says, no, you're not returning. You're going to die right here, the final solution. And out of the ashes of, of Europe emerges the state of Israel. That's why Saul's sin was so great. Saul was supposed to destroy Amalek. Our sages tell us that he who has pity on the wicked will ultimately be wicked to the pitiful. Saul made the mistake of letting King Agag live. Had he not, we would have not had these people. And that's what the prophecy was. That's why he was removed. He was not capable of being king. Jews want to return to the land. Oh no, a group emerges. It makes no sense, right? Right. Up until that time, the Jewish people, right? When you think about anti-Semitism up to a few hundred years ago, what did you hear? We hate the Jews because, right, they're so different. Jews, they're different. You have to become like us, become Christians. But when Jews convert to Christianity, they loved us. It always works that way. Once we become, oh, now we love you. They love us. 
Right? Jews became popes. Jews moved right up to the top. No, we don't. It's not a racial thing. Guys, don't. It's not racial. Become a Christian. Everything is fine. And then what happened is we have, right, the years of enlightenment. The Jews say, well, you know, let's try to be more like the nations of the world. And that's where Ezekiel chapter 20 comes in. Ezekiel says, one day you'll say, let us be like the other nations of the world. See, so he says, that by my life, that will not happen. And then what happens is suddenly you have a new, more virulent anti-Semitism that says, we don't hate you because you're different. We hate you because you're trying to be the same. You read Mein Kampf, Hitler doesn't speak there about, he doesn't speak there about, we hate the Jews because they're different. He says, no, they're, they're trying to be amongst us. The worst, they're trying to marry our daughters. We have to kill them. They're destroying the pure race. We have to make Europe, Judenrein, free of Jews, cleansed of Jews. What's going on here? Sometimes we have to look at scripture, not only to understand the past, but to understand the future as well. So what happens is finally the second temple is rebuilt. It's a, it was a magnificent thing, and it lasted for 420 years, and at the end of that time, of course, it was destroyed. And once it was destroyed, by the way, that's when, in a sense, the Messianic Age began. And remember we spoke about that? Remember, if one of the things the Messiah is supposed to do is build the third and final temple, Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's probably for me, I'll call back. Ezekiel 40 through 48, right? That means that he's coming, and there is no temple. The Messiah is to come to build a temple, not to come when there is a temple. So the moment the second temple is destroyed, the messianic clock begins. That's why the Medrash says, the Talmud, the sense the Medrash like a Talmud, it describes how, indeed, metaphorically, that the day the second temple was destroyed, the Messiah was born. And then it was up to each of us, to every one of us, every generation, to bring back the coming of the Messiah. That's why for Jewish people, the ninth day of love, that very sad day that we fast and lament, it's not Memorial Day. Memorial Day, right? What do we do? We, we, we feel sad about the things that have happened. The soldiers, perhaps, that died in war and so on. We're not, we're not crying about the past. We're crying about today. What is happening with us today? That's why we fast. That's why we live as a mourner does for 25 hours. We, we spend that time and contemplate ourselves. It's not just remembering the past. It's about what are we doing wrong today? What are we doing wrong? What are they doing right? Let's continue, if you will, in Daniel 9. And you'll see tonight as you study the chart, you'll see each period of time is spelled out for you. Actually, before you actually change, just look at the chart. You'll see I laid out for you the two verses. You see it there, Jeremiah 25, 12. There's a gray strip that goes across it vertically. And you see there's a black strip that goes across it vertically. You see, the gray strip is what Jeremiah 25, 12 is referring to. He's referring to the subjugation of Jerusalem until Cyrus the Mede. There's your 70-year period. However, the black strip, that's referring to Jeremiah 29.10. That's referring to the restoration. That's not going to happen for a while. That's not going to happen until the year 3408. Let's continue and finish off this chapter. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, lower right-hand side, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off. Again, notice, the prophet doesn't say after 62 and 7. No, no, no. And after the 62 weeks, we're in verse 26, where it says classical Jewish translation. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and will be no more. It doesn't mean not for himself. The ain low means and will have nothing left. By the way, is the word kares ever referring to, does God ever refer to kares? cutting off to someone righteous? 
Never. The word yikares, God never is cutting off someone who's righteous. It's always someone who's wicked in the Bible. If you want to talk about someone who's righteous who's being killed, we talk about neherag, to be killed. Mace, to die. Never yikares. Yikares means to cut off. And by the way, about half the time the word kares is referring to the Bible. It's not referring to death. It's talking about someone being removed from their place from their vocation perhaps. In this case we have an anointed person who is not the same kind of anointed person we had before. He's not a nugget, he's not a royalty anymore. This person is the most common Mashiach in the Bible. He's a priest. Remember, who controlled the priesthood as the second temple was being destroyed in the very first century? Who was the high priest all throughout that period? Sadducees, people who rejected the oral law, rejected life after death, people who were in cahoots with Rome and were corrupt. The Sadducees controlled and corrupted the temple. That's why the Essenes had to run to the Dead Sea area. They didn't want to be and see the corruption that was taking place in Jerusalem. The final priest is cut off. What does cut off mean? Cut off means he's ruled. He's not the priest anymore. The priesthood is finished. The Elo, they translate as not for himself. It doesn't mean not for himself. The Elo means, and he'll have nothing. It's all over. The priesthood has been terminated. The people of the prince who comes will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is fascinating. The people of the prince, of course, are the people of Titus Vespasian, Rome. The armies of Rome come now to destroy it all. Daniel tells us that after this 62-week period, two things happen. Number one, this anointed one is cut off. Number two, the second temple is destroyed. This can't possibly be speaking about Jesus because there are five and a half weeks between Jesus and the destruction of the second temple. They can't be together. Again, if Jesus is crucified somewhere around the year 30, we know the second temple was destroyed in about the year 70. That's five and a half weeks of times, 40 years between Jesus' crucifixion and the destruction of the second temple. But Daniel says, look, this is all happening after the 62 weeks. Not 62 weeks and four and a half weeks. After 62 weeks, these are the two things going to happen. Number one, the anointed one's cut off. Number two, the temple is destroyed. But his end shall come like a flood until the end of war. Desolation is decreed. Now, I, I explained earlier that when bad things happen to the Jewish people, they happen slowly. When you have time to read Josephus, you'll see there is described that under Nero, emperor of Rome at that time, as towards the end, Nero went to entirely stop the sacrificial system even before 77 years before. The great sages of the Jewish people plead to him to allow them to continue some elements of the sacrificial system. And he agrees and allows them to continue the sacrifices. The agreement, a covenant, is made between them. But as those of you who are familiar with Jewish history know that about three years later, a little more than three years later, suddenly that covenant, the promise that he had made that Jews can at least continue the sacrificial system was terminated and sacrifices were no longer being able to be brought. Let's take a look at the next verse. And he will strengthen a covenant with the great ones one week. And for half the week, he will abolish the sacrifice and offering and upon soaring heights will the mute abominations be until extermination as decreed will pour down upon the abomination until they're destroyed. And that's, of course, until the end of days, we still have Edom. It's sitting in Rome today. Of course, the question is, this is talking about Jesus. Where are these six things? Why didn't they happen? Why don't we have everlasting righteousness? It didn't occur. The church, by the way, doesn't even know what to do with this last week. They have no idea. What do you do with the last week? 
if you're having Jesus killed at the end of 69 weeks and how they time it you know you ask them where do you start counting the 69 weeks you can't start from Cyrus so you gotta start from Artaxerxes you will hear oh yes Artaxerxes in 444 BCE you will be told you know gave the order to Nehemiah that he can go and repair the wall that surrounded Jerusalem hardly rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. And by the way, the word, word, is not used there. It's an Egeris. He's sending a note. It's not talking about our exercise. And I am proud to say that many evangelical Christians agree. Some of the people that you've heard of, Calvin agrees and says this is clearly talking about Cyrus. And he says, if you read his commentary on Daniel 9, he says, don't ask me how to figure out the years. More recent evangelists like David L. Cooper from this century, wrote a book called Messiah, His First Coming Scheduled. Famous book. And is it in it, he says, yeah, this is talking about Cyrus clearly. Now, I want you to know something. There's a very serious controversy here, and you need to know about it. There's a serious controversy between the Jewish people and the secular world about chronology, and you need to understand this. We've had a number of arguments. Most of them have been settled already. They used to say there was no place called Ur Kazdim where Abraham was born. They found it. They used to say there was no place, you know, um, you know, there was no wall around Jericho that fell suddenly without scorch marks. They found it. They used to say the oil that the Talmud says was used in the temple was the wrong kind of oil because where did they get it from? And they found it. They found it. They found it. And there is still one more, con- one more big controversy waiting, and that is the controversy of chronology of the Second Temple period, I think I should explain. According to secular chronology, when was the First Temple destroyed in what year? According to secular chronology, the First Temple was destroyed in the year 586 BCE. According to secular chronology... And this is the area that we agree on. When was the second temple destroyed? Uh, That creates a problem. Because if we say that the first temple was destroyed in the year 586, okay, and that's when the first temple was destroyed, and we know there was a 70-year Babylonian exile, there's a very big problem. That doesn't get us down to 70 if we add only 420 years for the second temple. And that's a very serious problem. There's a 100, about 166-year controversy between the Jewish people. There are secular chronologists who agree with us, but the majority do not. There are Christian chronologists who agree with us, but the majority do not. And that is that the secular chronology has... 166 years more it actually winds up in the Persian period than the Jewish people and this today is a it's a controversy of course I'm waiting till this one is finally put to rest you see we were there they were we lived through that time we know how long that period was imagine what would be involved for whatever reason the sages had for hiding 166 years whatever motive they had how do you do that Remembering, the Jews weren't just living in the land of Israel during the Second Temple period. Oh, no. Jews were in Babylon. The greatest Babylonian institutions were there. It would require a national conspiracy to erase 166 years. Imagine all the ketubahs written and so on, all these things. Suddenly, you have the date on there. It's all there. Suddenly, whoop, you know what we're going to do? Shh, don't tell anyone. 166 years under the table. How did you do that? None of that. We have genealogies. We know our genealogies. We can, you can take any Jewish genealogy that runs itself right to the Second Temple period and just add up the life and the time that their children were born and just add it up and you'll see that it won't come out to more years. But this does remain a controversy.
It's not only Jewish. For instance, David L. Cooper, in his book on page 385, actually says that the Jewish chronology is correct. Now, he's a Christian. He is certainly not interested in supporting the Jewish people. He actually then brings in the Jewish sources for the chronology. Indeed, the vast majority of the world, they are against us on this issue. And that's why I have used tonight the year from creation and not the year that you're familiar with, 75, 86, and so on, because that would have only created enormous confusion. And it is my prayer and hope that soon that, that final controversy will finally be put to rest. I hope you understand how important every letter and every word of the Bible is. Sometimes we read it, we pour through it. If someone would just take a look, as we see in Daniel 9, verse 2, the word of Hashem from the prophet Jeremiah, and then just see in the second prophecy of Jeremiah 29.10, the word, Devar, comes up again. And in Ezra chapter 1, Devar, Devar Jeremiah. If you're reading the Bible and you don't understand what you're reading, stop. Pray that God would open your heart and mind so that you understand His Word. Read it again. It's precious. It's holy. On behalf of Outreach Judaism, I want to thank all of you for being here tonight. Thank you. I, um, what are the Bible you said he needs to buy the tapes. I, I don't... No, no, no. I, let me ask you a question, okay? When you were asking this question, I believe that you're asking this sincerely because you really want to know the answer, right? You want the information. Is that right? You're not... Right? So you're asking a very sincere question. Okay, I'm, we're going to go with that, okay? But that means that I'm going to give you information and that means that you're going to need to at least examine that information, okay? okay. The question is as I heard it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that the Jewish people are operating under a different salvation program today than we were during temple times. Apparently, the sin sacrifice was very important during temple times, and that's the only method of atonement in the Bible. Yet today, how do the Jewish people atone for their sins? You don't have a sacrifice. You don't have innocent blood shed for you. Okay? How could your rabbis alter the words of God of the Bible? Would you say that what I just expressed now is, a, is fairly a paraphrase of what you were really asking? Okay, good. Okay. So, right. We're in the Bible. Okay. So, first of all, you sh I'll ask you a question, and that is, is it indeed the case that the only method for atonement in the Bible is blood sacrifice you showed me no, I'm asking you a question don't worry just answer the question is it indeed the case that the only method for atonement in the Bible is a blood sacrifice okay, There's other ways. okay good there are other ways okay so therefore you don't only need blood there are other methods for atonement in the Bible 
Indeed, our situation today is prophesied in the Jewish scriptures. The prophets understood full well that one day the Jews wouldn't have their temple. We wouldn't have that great city, Jerusalem, with which to bring sacrifices. And uh, I would say, do you have a pen? Okay. So what you want to do is you want to write down 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 through 50. Eileen, maybe get his name and address and we'll ship him the tape on Sin and Atonement. Kings, chapter 8, verse 46 through 50. Whereas King Solomon says that one day, because of your sins, you're not going to have this place. You're going to be out of here. You're going to be in the land of your enemies, be it far or be it near. And when you're there, you're going to rethink yourselves. And you're going to want to get out from your sins. And he says, when you, when you feel that way, when you want to rethink yourselves, turn your face back to this place, to the city that I have chosen, this place that I have built in your name. Confess your sins. God will hear your prayers in heaven and forgive you for all your transgressions. We find Hosea chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, where Hosea gives us a little advice. Because he knew there would be people like you good people who wanted to do the right thing, who said, isn't sacrifice everything? And Hosea says, Israel, you certainly have stumbled in your iniquity. What do we do? Don't worry. Take with your words and return to the Lord your God and say, you shall forgive all iniquity and let us render for bulls the offering of our lips. The NIV found that statement so repulsive that it actually changed those words and let us render the fruit of our lips, therefore nullifying the message of Hosea. But finally, why is Hosea so consumed with telling the Jews that God will accept prayer in replacement of any sacrifice? There's good reason for it, because Hosea earlier on in the Bible, in Hosea chapter 3, verse 4, says very clearly says there that the Jewish people prophesizing about our situation today the Jewish people will for many days many days be without you know what without sacrifice without a prince without a king what I thought we have Jesus who's our prince king sacrifice oh no you're going to be for many days without a prince king sacrifice and he continues in the next verse in verse 5 until the end of days. And I don't think you or I have any question about what the Bible means there. When the Jewish people will return to the Lord their God and David, my servant, for goodness. Now, you see, those are the words of the Bible. And when I come here, I am, and I mean this, I am not, I am, I'm not important here. It's the only thing that's important is the Bible. I don't teach my opinion. My opinion is of no value whatsoever. And therefore, understand, that's the message. The message is, what does the Bible say? And I would submit to you that this is not your fault. Based on the information you've had in your life, I understand why you believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus because all you've been doing is you're seeing the Bible through Christian eyes. And what I would say to you is at least prayerfully allow yourself to say, you know what, why not study the Bible from the nation that brought us these holy oracles? Do that with me. Let's do that tonight. I want to send you material... I won't have time for more questions. Is that right, Eileen? And therefore, on behalf of Outreach Judaism, thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you.